Cancer Advances, a Cleveland Clinic podcast for medical professionals, exploring the latest innovative research and clinical advances in the field of oncology. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Cancer Advances. I'm your host, Dr. Dale Shepard, a medical oncologist here at Cleveland Clinic, overseeing our toxic phase one and sarcoma programs. Today, I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Christopher Waite. Dr. Waite is the Center Director for Urologic Oncology. He's here today to talk to us about high-intensity focused ultrasound for the treatment of prostate cancer. So, welcome, Chris. Thank you. So, maybe you could start by telling us a little bit about your role here at Cleveland Clinic. Great. So, I'm the Center Director for Urologic Oncology. That uh, means I help oversee the main missions of the clinic as a whole, kind of the educational aspects, the research aspects, and the clinical care uh, with regards to urologic oncology. And so, for those of you who don't know what that means, I didn't say neurologic, um, which my mom thought that's what I said when I told her I was going to do urology. Um, but that means prostate cancer, bladder cancer, and kidney cancer, which are the, the three most common and then some other rarer cancers. I guess we're going to focus today on focal therapies for prostate cancer and specifically about uh, ultrasound and high-intensity focused ultrasound. So, Maybe you could just give us a really broad background about what kind of focused therapies there are, and then maybe a little bit about the, the newer technologies. You know, prostate cancer is a very common cancer, and it affects hundreds of thousands of men a year. Uh, but most prostate cancer is not immediately life-threatening, may never become life-threatening, but there still is some that is quite, quite aggressive, and we still lose, you know, 25,000 or so men a year. And, uh, you know, there have been radical therapies that have been successful for years in preventing death from prostate cancer, but they've also been associated with a lot of side effects. And so that really allowed a space for people to try to figure out a way to, to treat this cancer, but do it in a way that minimized the side effects. It could really have devastating effects on quality of life. And that's where Focal therapy has really started many years ago, but now more recently, as we've improved our diagnostic techniques, our biopsy techniques and imaging techniques, it's finding a, a, a broader role. And focal therapy could be any sort of therapy that just treats part of the prostate rather than the entire gland. And the, the two most common are really high-frequency ultrasound or HIFU and cryotherapy or a freezing and thawing of the, of the prostate tissue. But there are many others. There's some laser focal therapies. Um, there's some gold nanoparticle therapies that are heated up by laser as well. So there, there it's an active area of research and exploration as we've gotten better at identifying where the prostate cancer is within the gland itself, um, trying to strike that happy medium of good cancer treatment that prevents death from prostate cancer, but while simultaneously maintaining a good quality of life. So we think about uh, this, uh, the ultrasound technique you mentioned, we'll refer to as HIFU. This is something that's been around for quite a while. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, ultrasound, as you know, we've used in medicine for for years and years and years, that most people are probably familiar with ultrasound use for prenatal diagnosis and seeing the baby before the baby is born. So it's been used in imaging for quite a long time. Um, and it was realized that, that these waves um, could also be focused into a very fine point and that, that you can really raise the temperature of those cells if you overlap them. And so that has been used also to treat a variety of things, um, a variety of tumors. 
but the prostate is a, a very good candidate for it because it, you can get very close access to it through the rectal wall and, and focus those waves in, into a really fine pinpoint area. The early attempts with HIFU were really whole gland treatments, actually. not It wasn't thought as a focal therapy, and the whole gland was treated. And when you treat the whole gland, you, you still get some of the side effects that you'd get with whole gland treatment, such as surgery or radiation. And there are also some limitations. The waves cannot penetrate to a certain depth, so larger prostates weren't candidates for it. And, and there were some other limitations, but I think more recently, the excitement has been as we've gotten, again, better at imaging and diagnosing and pinning down where the tumors are of just treating that particular area. And when we do that, then, then the side effect profile is really, really pretty minimal. Uh, and yet we still, at least in the short and intermediate term follow-up studies of these more focal treatments, seem to be pretty, pretty good and pretty comparable to standard treatments. So when we think about candidates for this uh, type of therapy, we're primarily thinking about patients that have prostate cancer, relatively low Gleason scores. Is that right? Um, fairly low volume disease. What, what are the characteristics of patients who would be good candidates? We, this is a question we get a lot. One other, I would say, shortcoming of the early HIFU studies was that they treated these very low risk men with prostate cancer. And, and we know now that most of those men probably should be watched. So we don't want to treat the lowest risk, but we really want to treat as, as you transition from the low risk. So that would be a Gleason score of six on the old scoring system or a grade group one on the newer scoring system. Those we still prefer to do uh, observation or active surveillance, as it is called, unless there are other factors that indicate that this may not just be that low-risk stuff. And that could be, for example, a high-risk genomic score or certain patterns that are seen under the microscope uh, or other details along those lines. But the, the real sweet spot for this treatment is as you move into the low intermediate risk, and it's a small volume, but intermediate risk tumor, uh, that would be a Gleason score of seven or three plus four or a grade group two on the new scoring system. And, and the ideal one is actually one that has a corresponding MRI that shows that same area that we found on the biopsy corresponds to an area on the MRI, because then we can also observe the treatment effect in the follow-up. And, and those are the people that seem to do really well. We have more confidence that we treated the area of concern. We have more confidence in follow-up that that treatment was successful um, because that area undergoes change on MRI that we can appreciate. How are we incorporating things like Oncotype DX or these uh, sort of predictive tools into selection of patients? One, one way is similar to what I referred to earlier, just in br briefly, is that if you have a, a low risk appearing tumor on histology, so it, under the microscope, it doesn't look low risk, but under the genomics profile, like, like Oncotype DX or Decipher or Polaris, there are many that are uh, approved now in this space. If that conveys high risk, then, then we think that there's probably more risk in that tumor than we anticipated by histology alone. And so that's a good option. And, you know, we, we're actually really interested in trying to use genomics as well as potentially artificial intelligence to try to risk stratify these patients and to identify those that really only have one dominant tumor. Many prostate cancers are multifocal. 
you may have a dominant lesion over on the left side, but you could also have a smaller lesion on the right side, but not all of them are that way. And, and so we think genomics may play a role in that uh, as well as potentially radiomics, meaning using artificial intelligence to look at that MRI and trying to sort which ones are truly unifocal and would really benefit from a focal treatment or those that may be more likely to have a multifocal tumor and maybe would just benefit from a whole gland treatment. And so at this point, if there are, you know, you look at an MRI, there are two small lesions, maybe one's on the left, one's on the right, not considering this type of therapy, or those are still maybe under consideration because you have something visible and and you still think that there's uh, some discrete lesions? They, they could be considered. It, w- it would be very dependent also on what the biopsy shows, but they would be considered. We have a group where we evaluate each person who wants to pursue focal therapy. This way, uh, we're trying to keep it uh, rigorous and make sure we're offering the, the appropriate treatment to patients. So anyone who wants to be considered for focal therapy at Cleveland Clinic we will take the, the results and evaluate them. We have kind of an ideal candidate, which I referred to initially, and then we have kind of extended criteria candidates that we will consider. And under the right circumstances, under the right findings, based a lot on what the biopsy shows, we, we could consider someone in that situation. A scenario that we feel even more comfortable with is if you had two lesions, but they're both on the same side, then we could do a hemigland treatment, which is still associated with fairly few side effects. But then we have more confidence that we're treating most of that cancer there, if not all of the cancer that we can find. We, we really want to demonstrate success. And I mean, we, we believe it should work just as well on high risk tumors, but we just don't want to be cavalier about deploying this technology until we understand it a little bit better and make sure we're deploying it in the safest way for our patients. When we talk about side effects, you know, clearly people that get radiation therapy, men that have a prostatectomy are at risk for things like incontinence and erectile dysfunction. Is there in the ability to focus the, the ultrasound therapy um, are there areas of the prostate that you stay away from to minimize those um, things that are more toward the edges of the prostate, or or is it really focal enough that you don't have to worry about that? You know, the, these nerves that run on the outside of the prostate, we thought as a specialty, we thought it was part of the prostate for probably the first 70 years of doing the radical prostatectomy. We just took them with them all the time because they're that close. They look like they're part of the prostate. They're on the bottom lateral side of the prostate. So on the outside edge, as you kind of referred to. And uh, it is fairly pinpoint. The, the area of the ablation zone is kind of one by two millimeters. So it's pretty small. Um, but there, there can be some thermal spread. So we do try to be cautious in that very peripheral lateral zone, right close to the neurovascular bundles of not giving a large dose there. And for someone who has a large tumor in that space, we just counsel the patient that there may be a little bit higher chance that that particular bundle is going to take a little bit of heat, quite literally, (laughs) and may experience some diminished erection function afterwards. When we look at the, the results from radiation and surgery, when you're treating the whole gland, you know, it's very dependent on your preoperative function. It's very dependent on your age, but it's about 50 to 60% will have their sexual function preserved with those treatments, but it's closer to 90% with HIFU because it is much more focused and we're often able to treat only one part of the gland. So 
the other side, for example, may be completely untreated and, and should function completely normally as it did before. And with that one to two millimeter margin, if we can have some confidence that that tumor is not abutting those nerves and we can leave just that little zone untreated and that also translates into better preservation of erections. What does this look like for a patient? How do you describe what, uh, what it's like to get this therapy time frame, um, recovery times, things like that? So a patient experiencing this, they actually experience very little discomfort. Um, it, this is a, an outpatient procedure. Um, it is not a surgical procedure, so there are no incisions made. This probe goes in the rectum after they're fully anesthetized and relaxed. And the rectum has to be dilated a little bit to get the probe to fit in. It's, it's kind of like a large bowel movement, a little bit bigger than a finger exam. And the main thing that a patient experiences is that there is a little bit of swelling associated with this that may block the urethra off. So we have to leave a catheter in place for anywhere from as few as two to three days if, if the zone of ablation is quite a ways from the urethra and we don't anticipate a lot of swelling to as many as five to seven days if they have a very large gland and we have to treat a lot of that prostate and especially if the area we have to treat is quite close to the urethra. Um, but they go home the next day and very few patients have blood in the urine and you may have a, a day or so of a little bit of blood when you have your first bowel movement. But many people are back to their normal activities barring having a catheter in place um, within a few days with, uh, with not a lot of setback or timeout for uh, recovery after this kind of treatment. And success rates so far, you know, certainly don't have the duration of uh, experiences we do with the other techniques, but how comparable is it? The overall and cancer-specific survival are equivalent in the five-year time frame. We know in prostate cancer, that's an insufficient time frame. Most studies need to demonstrate 10-year survival to really show that it's uh, better than not treatment, but, but quite comparable, at least in the intermediate term. In the, in the historical series, it's been around, as we talked earlier, for 15 to 20 years. You know, when they were doing whole gland, it was not as successful. It, the recurrence-free survival, I guess, is what we would call it, was more like 80 to 90%, whereas surgery and radiation were more like 95 to 99%. But in this more focal treatment, when we're a little bit more selective about who we're treating, we anticipate we're going to see a similar success rate, but we don't have that data yet. So we're really kind of in the five-year time frame. When we think about this procedure, you mentioned some other focal therapies, things like laser ablation and things mm -hmm. like that. Is this an advantage in some way based on the patient characteristics or the tumor characteristics? Or how do you compare those other therapies to the HIFU? Yeah, so this has a real significant advantage, I think, over cryoablation, which is, again, the, the freezing and thawing of the prostate. That one is very difficult to control the ice ball. So you create an internal ice ball with, with cryotherapy and it's really hard. It doesn't stop along planes. It can, it can go. And that one had actually a very high uh, rate of erectile dysfunction afterwards, even higher than surgery actually and radiation. So that one was sort of reserved for people who didn't want to want to undergo a surgical procedure or radiation, wanted a one-time treatment. but weren't really concerned about erections. Laser therapy is newer and I think still, still we have yet to see if it will pan out to do quite as well as other focal therapies like HIFU. Um, you know, we have a clinical trial 
that that we're evaluating a laser in conjunction with these gold link nanoparticles. So I would say the laser is a little bit more experimental than the HIFU. We have a little bit less experience to tell us whether it's going to give us as durable of, of a result. How widely available is HIFU? Very widely available in Europe, not very widely available in the United States. You know, I think of the focal one therapy machines available in the United States, which is the newest iteration of the, of the HIFU device. Yeah, I think there are fewer than 20 around the country. Um, there are more of the older machine called the Ablotherm, which is has more limitations, has a less intuitive interface. It's less able to integrate with the MRI, and we feel like you know it less able to target the areas of concern. And so, uh, not widely available, but I think focal therapy really is going to. We're going to see a lot more of it in prostate cancer because of, of the benefits with side effect profile. And these are a lot due to the fact that we're getting better at really pinning down where the cancer is. Are there any issues with coverage? There can be, yes. Yes, there, uh, it's a significant issue currently. We have, you know, Medicare does cover it. Often whatever Medicare decides to do, everybody else falls in line, but that's not been the case so far with HIFU. There are only a handful of insurance providers that cover HIFU for prostate cancer. And so that may be a challenge for, for patients if it's not covered. So certainly access is going to be important and avail- not only from coverage, but just availability. But um, what are the other gaps? What What's going to be necessary to, to move this forward and and I guess the uh, associated question is, what, what's the next big step? What, where do we need to go from here? Yeah, I, I think that really to get this, uh, right now we estimate probably about 15 to 20% of people are, might be eligible for this. And I think a lot of it stems on the fact that we don't have good long-term data in the, the higher intermediate risk or the higher risk patients. Um, so I think re- research showing us that it's also effective. We don't have any reason to believe that it wouldn't be able to you know, kill a high-risk cancer cell just as well as it can kill an intermediate-risk cancer cell. So I think we need those kinds of studies. We also need studies to demonstrate that it's at least equivalent uh, on cancer control or at least acceptably not inferior to the existing treatments. And so there are a couple of randomized trials going on right now. The largest one is in, in Great Britain, where they're randomizing people to, to radiation or surgery or focal therapy like HIFU. We, we really will be anxious to see those results because we don't want to see a serious drop-off in cancer control um, in exchange for a slightly better quality of life. So I think that's... Um, something that's important. And then the other key for HIFU really becoming widespread, I think, is really being able to pin down who are the candidates who are appropriate for it and who are the candidates who are not appropriate for it. And I think that will come through a variety of enhanced imaging studies, potentially genomics and and, uh, maybe AI helping us to really identify the appropriate candidates. I, I don't think we'll ever see prostate surgery go away, nor will I think we see radiation go away because they still are very effective treatments and they work really well. But I think as we get better at identifying the candidates who could be treated by focal therapy, and if we demonstrate that it's a really comparable cancer treatment, I think we'll really see it take off in the coming years. This is great. Well, 
You've uh, provided us with some great insight today and I really appreciate it. Thanks for being with us. It's my pleasure. Great talking with you. This concludes this episode of Cancer Advances. You will find additional podcast episodes on our website, clevelandclinic.org slash canceradvancespodcast. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget, you can access real-time updates from Cleveland Clinic's Cancer Center experts on our Consult QD website at consultqd.clevelandclinic.org slash cancer. Thank you for listening. Please join us again soon.